Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another Believe in Blazers podcast from the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Brian Wheeler, your congenial host, and we have a very special guest today that we're going to tell you about in just a moment. But our Believe in Blazers podcast is brought to you by uh, the good folks at Bet Online. Uh, this is the time of year when it's a great month for sports, a great time of the year for sports. And if you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you can find it. The NBA Finals ongoing as we speak. Baseball's marquee matchups, including prop bets and futures. Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. So visit their website today or use your mobile device to join. You'll receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next tip off or before the first pitch, head over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, we said we had a very special guest today, a longtime friend, a terrific basketball mind. I think I've learned more about basketball talking to him over the years than maybe anybody else I've uh, known. And he's been a terrific coach on so many different levels. And we'll talk to him about uh, the Blazers' newest choice as their head coach, somebody that he knows very well, Chauncey Billups. But I'm speaking, of course, of former Blazers assistant coach, Herb Brown. Coach, how are you, sir? Ryan, I'm doing great, and it's it's so good to catch up with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and uh, how much I miss you. Coach, I miss you too. We've been friends for a long time, and uh, I miss seeing you around these parts because you are no longer an Oregonian. Uh, tell everybody where you're making your home these days. We're in Travelers Rest. Sherry and I are in Travelers Rest, South Carolina, which is midway between Charlotte and Atlanta, where my kids live. My daughter lives in Charlotte with her family. My son lives in Atlanta with his family. Now, so sometimes I'll get to see them. I'll get to see them. Yeah, and then there's certainly certainly nothing wrong with that. And sometimes when I see your name brought up in a in a, somebody's article, they will say things like "semi-retired." I, I can't picture you though being ever officially totally retired. Uh, what would you take another coaching opportunity were it to uh, come about? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I am. So, you know, I miss basketball so much. I can't tell you how much you miss. I really being out there every day, uh, being at practice, interacting with the players, with the coaches, uh, helping players get better. There's no better life. Yeah. And I, I get, I get the impression you fit into the category of once a coach, once a coach, always a coach. I mean, it just see, it just comes natural to you and something you do very well and something that I think is instinctual for you and something that I, I don't think you've ever tired of doing. Even even on days when maybe you didn't win a game, uh, I still get the impression that you just got excited about whenever the next game was going to be. Absolutely. I mean, every game that you're involved in, every practice you're involved in, you learn. And that's what I really miss, you know, the interaction. It's just, it's incredible because it's all trial and error. After every game, you see what you did right, what you did wrong, and you try to correct it so that the next time you're going to have a better outcome. I've certainly lost track. Uh, how many years would you say that you've done some level of coaching? I'm not sure you've ever had any years off totally, but you, you've done camps, you've done seminars, you've traveled all over the world to uh, be guests at uh, various uh, camps you've taught so many young coaches about what the profession is like uh, so how many years would you say from start to where you are right now have you done some type of coaching well <laughs> wills i'm 85 years old and i actually started coaching 
when I was in college. I coached the fraternity teams while I was playing ball in college. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I've done it every year since. I mean, I was working with Raheem Tufts at Sherwood High School in Oregon. Um, I went to Japan with the women's national team. I went to Uruguay with their national team. Um, you know, it's just something that's in my blood and what I did and what I do. I know rules have changed over the years. Uh, some people have said uh, the game has changed in, in some respects. Um, as you said, you've coached women. They have certainly made some great strides uh, to get to their uh, their level of basketball to have a lot of respect and a lot of recognition. Um, do you think that coaching has changed much over the years? Well, coaching, coaching hasn't really changed, but coaches have had to adjust. Um, you know, the rules change the way the philosophy of the game, you know, we have the three point shot, so much emphasis on the three point shot, but everybody knows if you're watching the NBA finals, everybody knows Defense wins championships. And that's what it's all about. And a lot of it is fundamentals. I mean, when I was a, a high school player, my high school coach taught the three, four, and five-man weave. And, you know, backdoor offense, going backdoor, um, coming off screens, setting screens, how to play the pick and roll, how to help on the weak side. That stuff hasn't changed. You know, the fact what what's difficult right now, I think, is that coaches, there are so many people involved in coaching these guys. When I was an NBA coach in Detroit by myself, I had one assistant. We had one trainer. We had one scout. And right now I look at some of these games and they're 15 guys sitting on the bench <laughs> and they're not players. <laughs> they're all and they're, they're all like two rows of two rows of coaches. It's not not, not just yeah, the guys right. in the first row, they're in the back row too. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. They're in the back row and they're all over the place. When you go to a game and you see the players work out before a game, each one of them has a different guy that they're working out with. Whereas when I was an assistant in the NBA, there were three assistants and <clears throat> maybe a, a guy, a scout that sat behind the bench. And then before the game, we each worked with four players. When I was in Detroit, when we won the championship, one of the guys I worked with pregame was Chauncey Billups. Yeah, in fact, we want to talk about that relationship with Chauncey. But I have one more question about uh, the evolution of coaching. Uh, I don't even I don't even know when 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 was the first time you heard the term analytics, and is that something that is a positive for today's coach, or is it something that can get in the way? of what uh, basic coaching can be about sometimes when you're looking at kind of sheer numbers and sheer stats sometimes to guide the way things are done? Well, the only uh, analytics that, that I that I'll put it this way, I think analytics has a place in the game, but I don't think it should be the overriding thing that decides who you play. I think the big thing is you run a practice, you find out who you who you think your top eight is or your top ten, and uh, when you scrimmage, you see which team wins and which guys are on the winning team all the time. And those are the guys, you know, those are the guys you want on the court. You know, success breeds success. And uh, I can think of a coach, Bill Musselman, for instance. 
his practice were games of six baskets. And he decided who was going to play by which team won those, predominantly won those uh, six, uh, six uh, basket games. But analytics definitely had, you know, there are a place, um, you know, when you see the plus and minus, but the plus and minus isn't the end all to uh, whether you win or not, because it depends on what the other team's doing. I, I think we all look at statistics. I looked at stats. Whenever I coached, I looked at stats, see what a guy did, whether a guy turned the ball over five times but had 15 assists, or whether it, you know your point guard had one, one assist and three turnovers. I mean, those things you look at. But you look at second shots, foul shot percent, foul shooting percentage, which team shot more layups, made more layups, and defensive stops. I mean, you know, it there's a lot that goes into it. But you, the the thing is that it's all about the players. If you watch the game the other night, uh, Giannis made the great block. Chris Milton, Middleton scored the last 10 points in the game. But his teammates got him the ball. And the coach set up the, uh, set up the system or, or the, the tactic that was going to get him the ball. And then, you know, everybody talks about Giroux Holiday and he played a bad game. But he played a great defensive game. So there's so many things that go into it. I think analytics play a part. But that, that's not the reason you win or lose. I wanted to get your reaction to a quote uh, that I heard a while ago from George Carl, another guy who's been there in the profession for quite a, quite a few years. He said once, uh, I'll, be, I'll be head coach for as long as the players allow me to. Um, and it's a pretty strong statement. And it's almost saying that it doesn't matter how strong a coach you are if the players aren't responding, if they decide that they're going to reject what you are, are sending their way. If for whatever reason they've decided to tune you out, then doesn't matter how great a coach you are, you're going to have a hard time surviving. Um, as, as times have evolved, players make so much more than most coaches, most of the time anyway. Uh, seems like management, ownership of some teams, not very patient uh, all the time with their head coaches. And the old adage, it's easier to fire one head coach than maybe get rid of 12 players. Uh, do you think there's anything to that as the game has evolved, at least on the NBA level? Is there anything to that that you pretty much do need to have the cooperation of the players or it doesn't matter how great a coach you are? Uh, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, you know, the players have to buy in to what you're trying to teach them or what you and your staff are trying to teach them. They want the co a coach to be consistent. They want a coach to establish their roles and they want a coach that they can have confidence and trust in. I mean, if you look at the Suns right now and you read some of the stuff that Monty Williams says before a game, after a game, um, he says that he's evolved as a coach, but you have to gain the trust of the players and you have to have a, you have to have a team with a, with a, the leadership of the players believes in the coach because if, uh, if Chris Paul, Paul believes in the coach, 
the other players are going to believe in the coach. If Booker believes in the coach, they, they're going to believe in the coach. And they want a coach to be a straight shooter. So, yeah. Um, but, but, Wheels, you said one thing about money. In the pro game, the players have always made more money, more money than the <laughs> That's coach. True. That's true. And they've always made more money. And a coach gets in trouble when he gets when he lets his ego get in wet the way of the team. You know, you, you a coach has to be um, introspective. He has to he has to look at himself and see what he's doing right, what he's doing wrong. And he has to be able to communicate with the players and listen to what the players are telling him. He doesn't have to agree with everything they're saying, but you have to listen. And then you have to make decisions. Over the years, you've been a mentor for so many young coaches. Uh, who maybe was the biggest mentor for you as you were coming up through the coaching ranks? Well, it's, it, it, you know, <clears throat> it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I never played in the pros. So, um, and I only played, I played in college. I played in the army and I, I was the coach in the army of that team. So I never really had a, a specific mentor, but when I got to be an NBA head coach, one night we were playing in Phoenix right after I got the head coaching job and Tommy Heinsohn and Johnny Most sat me down. They were, they were going to play the Suns after we were going to play them, but they got in, they got in early and they sat me down and Tommy talked to me. John McLeod talked to me at a coach's meeting uh, after the season. Um, and what I did was I read as much as I could find out. I went to as many camps and clinics as I possibly could. I asked questions. I read about coaching, uh, whether it be uh, Bill Walsh, whether it be Red Auerbach, whether it be Red Holtzman, whether it be Bob Knight, and I try Al McGuire, and I, I try to develop a philosophy that fit my personality based on what these guys could do. But I didn't really have a specific mentor. I, I was lucky. I don't know. It's, it's unbelievable. I was really lucky. I was blessed to have it, the career that I had. Well, over the years, how many uh, philosophy um, conversations about coaching would you say you had with your brother, Larry? Oh, I've had a lot with Larry, but I learned a lot from Larry. I mean, Larry played for Dean Smith, played for Alex Hannum. He played for uh, Babe McCarthy. He played for great John McClendon. So he, he played for great coaches and he learned from them. And I tried to call as much as I could from what he told me about how these other guys coach. Um, you know, he, not only was he a great player, but he really grew up with great coaches. Played for Frank McGuire. I mean, he, he coached with Doug Moe. Um, so he coached with Rudy Tomjanovich. So I learned things from Larry about that. 
And I watched Larry work because I worked with him. And I watched what he did. And I watched how he evolved as a coach. And, you know, I was blessed in that respect. You two were together uh, as uh, the staff that led the Pistons to that NBA championship back in 2004. You already referenced that the leader of that team was Chauncey Billups, recently named as uh, the Blazers' new head coach. Uh, what was your impression of Chauncey as a player in that historic season? Well, number one, he was a leader. Number one, he wanted to win. Number one, he accepted coaching. He accepted constructive criticism. Uh, and he never said die. I mean, he, he just would never give up. And he was a big shot maker, much like Damien. You know, Damien's a great shot maker. And Chauncey, Chauncey was the same way. I mean, you wanted the ball in their hands at the end of the game. Did he express any uh, future desire to be an NBA head coach when you were coaching him back then? You know, I never really talked to him about that. But um, I know he wanted to stay involved in the game. And he's always been involved in the game. And, you know, he evolved as a player. He wasn't a great player to begin with in the NBA. I mean, he evolved and became a great player and became a great leader. I, you know, I wasn't with him when he first got drafted. You know, I, he played at the University of Colorado. Is that correct? Yes. I, yeah. And so, and he was drafted by the Celtics and Patino let him go pretty soon after that. But, um, you know, he, he, he made the Pistons a great team or helped make them a great team. That was a great team. He, he was a leader, and he had other people help him be a leader, okay, on that team. One of the unsung leaders of that team was Carlos Williamson. He was the sixth man, yeah. and he was a veteran player. And that team turned the corner when they traded for Rashid Wallace. Yes. Rashid Wallace was the greatest addition to that team. And uh, very, very intricate part of why we won the championship. But Chauncey was a leader. So, so what do you think? Uh, you've, you've observed many head coaches in their first year on the NBA level. It's a little more challenging for Chauncey in that he has not been a head coach anywhere before and has barely been an assistant for, for that matter. So what do you think will be the biggest challenge that Chauncey will have as a first-year NBA head coach? Well, that's really a difficult thing. It's, it's getting the best player on the team to be on the same page with him. And if the best player believes and understands that Chauncey wants to do what's best for the organization, and that Chauncey wants to chase the championship. I think that's the most important thing. And then the second thing is to surround Chauncey to surround himself with a staff that um, he can rely on, lean on, get information from, and help help teach uh, the players how to win as a unit. You know, Damien can do that, but the, but the players have to believe in Damien. All of them have to believe in Damien. 
The problem in the NBA is when you have players that are jealous of the leadership. Now, we've heard some names mentioned. Nothing official as of yet as we record this podcast in terms of assistance uh, for Chauncey's staff. But you have been able to confirm that one of the names mentioned, Scott Brooks, uh, barring any last-minute snag, uh, is going to be probably the lead assistant uh, for Chauncey. Uh, what do you think he's he will bring to the staff in terms of uh, a guy who's been a head coach, has played in the league, and uh, has been an assistant, somebody that can bring a lot of different levels of experience to help Chauncey out? Well, number one, Scotty was a player. And he was a player that came out <laughs> out of nowhere to make a career in the NBA. And he played with a lot of great players, and he played for some very good teams. And he's been very successful. He was successful in Oklahoma City. He was successful in Philadelphia for a while, I believe. And he, he did a remarkable job this past year, but over the years in Washington. But this past year was incredible. They were out of the water because of COVID, because of a lot of other things. And he got them into the playoffs. And uh, his, uh, his wealth of knowledge, his ability to understand players, to get along with players, to get the best out of players, that can only help Johnson. He'll be a great sounding board. When you first came to Portland, you were part of the staff for a first-year NBA head coach in Maurice Cheeks. Um, as an experienced coach, what were the things that you tried to bring to that staff to make Moe's transition easier? Well, I, had, I was lucky. I had been with Moe in uh, Philadelphia. And Moe, at that time, never thought he was going to be a head coach in the NBA. Um, so just the knowledge of how to watch film, how to uh, prepare a practice, how to run a practice, how to develop a scouting report, how to run team meetings, how to run meetings with the coaches. Uh, any way I could help Mo, that's what I wanted to do. Now, Chauncey had a chance to work with uh, Ty Lue's staff with the Clippers this past season. How do you think that experience will help him in his, in his transition to the, to the head job in Portland? Well, I think I... I think it's going to help him very, very well. It's going to stand him in great stead. I mean, <clears throat> Lou Tyrone played for us when we were in Atlanta. And uh, he was a leader on the team. And, you know, he's had great experience as a coach. I mean, he, he was with Doc Rivers. He was the coach in, um, he was the coach in Cleveland. He sat on the bench and, and as an assistant, and he's evolved into a great coach. And I think that, you know, when you're with a great coach or whether you're with a head coach as an assistant, you meet every morning. You have a lot of discussions. You go out after games. Um, you go out. Um, you meet for breakfast. <laughs> you, you go out. If you have a day off on the road, a lot of times you go out for dinner. And you just talk basketball and you exchange ideas. And if you're worth it, if you're worth your weight and salt as a coach, you just have your eyes and ears open all the time. And maybe, maybe sometimes you keep your mouth shut, but you just listen 
and just take everything that you've learned. There's exceptions to every rule, of course, but uh, for years, uh, I always would hear that it would be easier to be a head coach in, uh, in, in any sport, manager in baseball, if you were, as a player, maybe somebody who wasn't uh, an all-star, that sometimes the superstar players would not always have the patience to be a head coach. I, I know Jerry West did say that after he tried his hand at being an NBA head coach. He said that he had trouble sometimes accepting uh, the deficiencies of some players that weren't as great as he was when he was a player. So sometimes the feeling was that the, the uh, guy that maybe wasn't the great player, maybe he was a little more observant. Uh, if he spent some time on the bench, maybe he sat next to uh, the head coach or the manager and learned some things in that respect, even before he ever became a head coach or a manager. Do you think there's any, any, um, any relevancy to that? Do you think there's any truth to that statement that sometimes uh, the guys who weren't necessarily the greatest of players sometimes make the best of coaches? Well, I, I, I think that has some relevance um, because you do watch the game in a different manner uh, because you're sitting on the bench or maybe not playing as much. Uh, you're not in a position where everything depends on how you, how you play at the end of the game or in the last two minutes and how you perform night in and night out at a very, very high level. But um, you mentioned some interesting things because you said Jerry West, but he had Jack McCloskey and Stan Albrecht as his assistants. And, they were, and he was successful. And he did it for three years. They were very successful. And then he burned out because he didn't have the patience that was necessary. Larry Bird did the same thing. He had Rick Carlisle and he had uh, Dick Carter. Um, but then you look at uh, Billy Cunningham, who was a great player. And he, he, became, he became a terrific coach. You know, he had great players, but he understood them. Mo played for him. Julius played for him. McGinnis played for him. Dawkins played for him. Jelly Bean Bryan played for him. I mean, so it's, it's not a given. My brother was a great player. Doug Moe was a very good player. You know, and then, then you look at Popovich wasn't a great player. <laughs> John McLeod wasn't a great player. Tommy Heinsohn was a great player. Bill Russell was a great player. But they surrounded themselves with good people, and they understood. And so it might help to some degree, but I don't think that that's the panacea. Well, that's, <clears throat> that's the answer. If you, if you dedicate yourself to coaching and understand human nature and understand human beings, that'll help you be successful. Great players tend Sometimes they don't have the patience. But one of the important things of being a head coach in the NBA, and this is something that maybe if I had had a little more experience because when I was a head coach, I would have lasted longer as a head coach in the NBA. You have to get the best player on your side. He has to be on your side. Because if he's the best player, the other players have a tendency to follow him. And, you know, that's a very, very important thing, I think. 
And a lot of people love, and, and I do, uh, you know, the, the movie Hoosiers. I find it interesting, you know, people talk about coaching and so forth. And we see the early part of the movie, Gene Hackman as the head coach is, you know, is, 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 is uh, getting his players who grudgingly initially going along with his, his new ways of doing things, pass the ball X number of times before you take a shot and so forth. This team started to show some progress, but they didn't really become a winning team until, you know, Jimmy Chipwood, you know, the star player joins the squad and he believes in everything the head coach is, is selling and also just happens to be a really, really talented player. But I found interesting that the guy that uh, the guy that had the X number of passes before he take a shot. Uh, and again, I don't know, you know, sometimes Hollywood does things a certain way. And so I don't know if this is the way that the, uh, the, that Hickory actually won the state championship, but what ends up being the game winning player, a clear out for, for Jimmy Chitwood, you know, to, to take the game winning shot. So I, I find it interesting that, you know, you get right down to it. And, and, and I think every, and I'm sure you would agree with this. Every great coach would say, uh, I look a lot better when I've got some pretty good players to work with. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. You know, you mentioned the Hoosiers. Well, any team I ever coached, now not in the NBA, but any other team that I coached overseas, in Spain, in Israel, in uh, Puerto Rico, in South America, we always watched the Hoosiers during the playoff <laughs> on a bus ride. We always watched Hoosiers. But the other thing is, um, you know, I can, I can give you an example. Uh, when I was a head coach of the Pistons, we were playing Kansas City in a, in a national TV game, and it goes into overtime. And we have the ball with about five seconds to go with a timeout. And I call a timeout, and I'm ready to set a play up and – Marvin Barnes says, coach, give me the ball. I said, what? He said, just <laughs> get me the ball. And I, you know, I'm a young guy. I look at him. I know he's a great player. I said, okay. We go out. <laughs> we get the ball. We get it to Marvin. He knocks it down. And the press interviews him after the game. He said, Marvin, how, how come you got that? He said, hey, coach drew up a great play. Got me the ball. And I was able to knock it down. That's that's when you really appreciate great player. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, let me ask your thoughts about two great players who never became uh, head coaches in the NBA. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Rick Barry. Now, maybe for different reasons, but they both desperately wanted to be head coaches in the NBA. Now, Barry, some people the, say. Uh, uh, Rick Barry. Rick say? Barry, Kareem yeah, Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. Rick Barry, some people think, well, his temperament uh, cost him. Uh, Kareem, I'm not so sure. What was the, but do you have any thoughts as to why those guys didn't become head coaches when they really, really, I mean, I think Kareem had to go coach on an Indian reservation to get, to get some, just to get any head coaching opportunity. But these guys never became big time, even, even smaller time NBA head coaches. And they desperately wanted to, and they were as great as any players that ever played and yet never got the opportunity. You have any thoughts as to why they were, they were not given those, those chances. Well, those are the, the two great players. I think Kareem, because when he was a player, I think he was somewhat introverted or aloof. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that, that impression that he left made it difficult for him to get a position. Um, 
and maybe he didn't really, when he first started out, didn't really want to be want to be an assistant. Um, Rick is a completely different story. Rick is a great player, and in my opinion, I I work with Rick a lot. I mean, he's a very good friend of mine. I, I ran his camp when I was a college coach on Long Island. I ran it for three years. Um, I knew his kids. I helped my brother get Scooter, uh, Scooter Barry into Kansas. Um, I coached Scooter in Spain. Rick is very opinionated. And he might not have a lot of patience, but he knows the game inside and out. Uh, his father-in-law was Bruce Hale, was a great college coach. And Rick, he, he's a, a bit of abrasive if you don't really understand him because he's such a great competitor. Both of them are great competitors. Kareem didn't wear it on his sleeve. Rick wore it on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. And so I think people might have been more jealous of Rick and thinking that maybe Rick wouldn't be open to suggestions. But I think if Rick had been given the opportunity, he would have picked the same kind of assistance that Jerry West and Larry Bird did. And that would have helped him be very successful. And I think Kareem would have been very successful. But Rick is an extrovert, and Kareem, I think, is an introvert. And that's well said. Well said. You know, that has something to do with it. But, But I really, both of them, I think, would have been great coaches. One last question about Chauncey. Uh, you know, we've heard rumblings that have been denied by the man himself that Damien uh, may may want to plot out his future uh, in somewhere other than Portland. Uh, he's been so loyal to the team, to the city, uh, has said he doesn't want to be uh, like some players that want to go form a super team somewhere else. He wants to try to former super team in Portland where he's going to be the center of it. Uh, the Blazers showed great loyalty to him uh, by choosing him in the draft. And so he has always said he wants to bring a championship to Portland. Now, obviously he's uh, not going to be working with the head coach that he had known from day one during his time with the Blazers. But do you see qualities in Chauncey that, uh, and, and he and Damien have had a relationship apparently uh, before even this time, uh, Damien said he did talk to him, before he got the, uh, the position as head coach. So, so they're not exactly strangers to one another, but do you see uh, Chauncey having the type of personality, the type of qualities that will be able to sell Damien on the fact that if in fact he's had any thoughts about possibly going somewhere else, that he should give the new regime uh, a chance and that uh, he's still going to be obviously a very valuable part of whatever the Blazers do going forward. And that Chauncey can uh, hopefully sell him on the fact that uh, he should continue to, to, to stay where he's been for his entire NBA career? Uh, absolutely. I have no doubt. I have no doubt about it. I don't think Chauncey is going to come in and say, Damien, uh, uh, I think these are the five guys that we should be looking at. They add to our team. I think he's going to come in and say to Damien, let's sit down and have a discussion. What do you think the team needs? Why have we been so successful thus far, but we haven't been able to get over the hump. What kind of players do we need? 
Do you have some idea on the players that we could go after? Have you had discussions with some players that might want to come here that can really help us? And I think they're both going to be on the same page because they both are great players. Well, Chauncey was a great player. They both were winners. They both are winners. They both rise to the occasion when they're being pressured. And I think that's the, that's the most important thing. And Chauncey developed into a very good defensive player. And I think he can help in that respect, help the Blazers. Look, I have the greatest respect for Terry Stotts. He was a terrific, terrific coach and a terrific human being and got along with his players, understood his players, but he didn't really spend a great deal of time on defense. And I think that Chauncey will spend a lot of time on defense. Before we let you go, Coach, uh, we mentioned your brother Larry before. He was in the news for a couple of different reasons recently. First of all, very nice honor bestowed on him for his career in coaching, the Chuck Daly Lifetime Achievement Award. Can't get much more significant than that. He deserved every... I I wonder why it took so long, but he definitely deserved that. And he's a lifer. Larry's a lifer. Larry would walk by a schoolyard and see some kids playing, and he'd stop and try to help. (laughs) Well, and along those lines, uh, looks like he's going to be back on a college staff helping out uh, a former NBA star. Yeah, he's at Memphis with Penny Hardaway. Uh, I think Penny has a great future ahead of him. He's, he's done very well on the high school level, on the AAU level as a coach. And now uh, the last couple of years of Memphis, uh, he probably needs a mentor from the standpoint of an old timer that's sitting on the bench and helping him manage his staff, uh, understand that, you know, the time you have to spend. And Penny is a worker and he spends all his time. Larry, Larry's a great judge of talent. He's a, he can see the potential in a player and he's a great teacher. So he's going to help Penny. He's going to be happy. He's smiling. And I, when I talk to him on the phone, I can tell he's happy. I can almost see him smiling, even though it's not a Zoom cast. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, I'll tell you what, if, uh, if, if, if coaching to some level uh, and to some degree is not, is not in uh, your future, I think uh, maybe uh, some uh, commentary and analysis uh, might be because terrific uh, analysis and, uh, and observations all the way through. Uh, a sheer pleasure. The time went by very quickly. Uh, and, uh, and I felt very good about the Blazers selection of Chauncey. And I feel even better after getting the uh, ringing endorsement that you provided for him as somebody who's worked with him and known him for a long time. So I think the Blazers made a good selection and hopefully that will be borne out by uh, what Chauncey is able to do in his uh, Blazer tenure, which is going to begin uh, sooner rather than later. But, but thank you so much for the time today. And thanks so much for uh, giving us the opportunity to catch up a little bit. And hopefully we can do it again uh, during the season when we see some of uh, some of what Chauncey looks like in action on the sidelines. Wheels, I, I would love to do it, but I really enjoyed it. And you're in your element, baby. You really know the game. You're a great announcer. You're a great person. And 
I'm so happy that you're doing this podcast. Coach, thanks very much. There's Herb Brown, a great friend, great uh, coach, and a mentor to so many over the years. And uh, as I said, I've probably learned more about basketball just talking and listening to him over the years. Always a great pleasure to do so and was a terrific addition to our Believe in Blazers podcast today, brought to you as always by Bet Online. And again, as events warrant in the offseason, we will join you for a new podcast. Uh, so they'll be coming up from various times, but we'll certainly get the word out when we put a new one out and when we get the opportunity to talk to great guests such as Coach Brown. I'm Brian Wheeler. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the podcast, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Take care for now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.